Buongiorno, and welcome to the audio commentary for Dario Argento's opera from 1987. My name is Nathaniel Thompson from Mondo Digital, also author of the DVD Delirium book series, and uh, you can also uh, find me at TCM's Movie Morlocks. And I am very excited to be taking you on a tour through what I think is uh, one of the last and finest crown jewels of Italian horror cinema. Uh, this came at the end of uh, a, a really amazing decades-long wave of uh, very stylish and I think very visionary horror films from Italy. Uh, there were a few that came after this, but the industry was largely declining by this point due to uh, television. In fact, it was TV pre-sales that um, allowed this film to have a much bigger budget than usual. And this is perhaps uh, the most lavish film that Argento directed, uh, at least up there with films like Suspiria and Inferno. It's very opulent and it has um, just amazing technical credits all around uh, behind the camera and a great cast in front of it. So, of course, right here we have uh, a, a funny little uh, joke here with a raven squawking along with Giuseppe Verdi's Macbeth on the soundtrack, the, play, the uh, opera that's being performed here. And, uh, of course, animals uh, have always played a very significant role in Argento's films, uh, a very vocal animal lover. He, of course, uh, famously introduced them in uh, his movie titles, including the Animal Trilogy with Birth of Crystal Plumage, Cat of Nine Tails, and Four Flies in Grey Velvet. And you have animals all over this film. You have ravens, you have lizards, you have dogs. It's everywhere, um, which makes this a companion of sorts to uh, his previous film, Phenomena, which uh, was made, uh, shot in 1984, hit most theaters in 85, and um, of course that was a very, very animal-centric film, probably the most of all of them, but this one is a very close runner-up. Now, uh, this part of Marchakova, which we never see, it's all a POV shot, was originally supposed to be Vanessa Redgrave, basically an extended cameo. And depending on who you talk to, uh, she was either kept waiting for a long time by the production for a week in her hotel, or she demanded more money. Accounts differ, but the point being that she jumped back on a plane and they had to rethink the part. And so it wound up becoming strictly a POV shot. You never see her face, and the voice was obviously dubbed in later. Uh, the guy that you see walking towards you with the dark hair is Carl Zinni. He was in Demons. Uh, he was the second male lead behind Urbano Barini, who is uh, also in this film. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, he doesn't even get a character name or any lines, but it's fun seeing him in here. Uh, Demons, of course, was an Argento-produced film directed by Lamberto Bava uh, two years before this one. Now, Ian Charleston there in the middle playing uh, Mark, the director. He was a Scottish actor, uh, very, very uh, well-known at the time. He had been in Chariots of Fire, the Best Picture Oscar winner, uh, as well as another Oscar winner, Gandhi, uh, directed by Richard Attenborough. Uh, obviously, he uh, had also appeared in Derek, Derek Jarman's, excuse me, Derek Jarman's Jubilee, uh, a very uh, popular sort of punk experimental film, although he tended to leave it off his resume. Uh, he was also a very Brit, uh, busy British TV actor. He um, uh, did a lot of theater work, and uh, this would actually be his last big screen role. Uh, during production, he was in a very bad car crash that left him with uh, several cracked ribs, and during the blood test, it turned out that he was HIV positive and he would actually uh, die of AIDS uh, in 1990, three years later. Uh, so he did a few more TV projects, and oddly enough, his last really big hurrah was on stage in England uh, playing Hamlet in a very, very acclaimed performance, um, which is foreshadowed a bit here when he actually does uh, Hamlet's solilo soliloquy later in the film. So now here uh, we have the heroine of the film, Betty, who is played by uh, Christina Marslock, the Spanish actress, uh, who has been cited by Argento and almost everyone else on the set as the most difficult actress that he ever worked with. Uh, I think the words um, difficult and capricious were thrown around a lot. And um, 
she's probably the biggest obstacle that I've heard from people when they're watching this film. They tend to find her very cold or unsympathetic. And I, I think part of that's due to the script in that she's basically disoriented and sort of whining or in a state of distress for pretty much the entire film. Uh, there's really very little warmth to her character. So um, it, it's hard to say how much of that is down uh, to her or how much of, uh, you know, is up to the direction that she was given. Uh, originally, other actresses were considered for the part, including Jennifer Connelly from Phenomena and uh, Mia Sara, who, of course, had been in Legend Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but ultimately Argento decided that she had the right look. Uh, she was a prominent model, and she'd been in several Spanish TV shows when she was brought onto the film. Uh, she'd actually been acting since she was a teenager, and um, she'd appeared as the young version of Laura Antonelli in uh, Giuseppe Patroni Griffi's uh, Collector's Item in 1985, two years before this, which was written by Lucio Fulci. Uh, so she was primarily cast in opera based on the belief that she was going to be an up-and-coming star. Uh, she had appeared opposite Tom Hanks in a 1986 American-Israeli production called Every Time We Say Goodbye, uh, but that was barely given a theatrical release in North America by TriStar and didn't make much of a splash. It pretty much went straight to video where most people saw it, aside from a tiny handful of screens where it showed. Uh, now, her career after opera was largely unremarkable, uh, unfortunately. It was, uh, the main highlight after that was a 1989 film called Marrakesh Express. And uh, she later went on to found the Marsalak Acting Academy in Madrid. Now, her younger sister uh, was a pop singer, uh, Blanca Marsalak, who was, uh, had a much longer acting career, actually. She was also in Collector's Item and went on to star in Lucio Fulci's The Devil's Honey, which is a uh, wonderfully outrageous film. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. It's insane. And she kept acting until 2006. Uh, the gentleman with the mustache uh, who is speaking is, uh, you have to excuse my pronunciation, I don't speak Hungarian, but it's uh, Georgi Giorvanyi, who uh, was a director of the Hungarian Opera House, so another opera connection there. He's also one of the uh, handful of actors who was obviously uh, dubbed during the film. A lot of this was actually shot with direct sound. Um, oddly enough, this is uh, a rare chance you'll actually hear Daria Nicolodi's uh, real voice. That's Daria in the, in the background playing Mira. Uh, now, the woman standing in the middle there is Barbara Kupisti, who, again, uh, has no character name, no dialogue, but she was the star of uh, the film Stage Fright uh, shortly before this, uh, which was directed by uh, Argento protege Michele Suave. Uh, she also starred in The Church, which was produced by Argento and directed by Suave. So it's fun seeing her pop up in a few scenes in the background there. Uh, you know. And uh, that is William McNamara, uh, who was doing Little Wave there, uh, an American actor who was seen in such films as Chasers and later in, uh, most famously in Copycat. Uh, he plays the main serial killer in that film. And they actually shot his voice on the set, but for some reason they decided to dub him with a British accent. So if you know what he sounds like in real life, it's a little disorienting hearing him uh, speak with the voice in this film. It really sounds nothing like him at all. Now, it's interesting if you try to figure out the location of this film. It apparently takes place in Italy somehow, but almost everyone speaks with a British accent. Uh, but not everyone, so it's a little odd. Uh, Betty doesn't really, uh, nor does Mira, but then all the supporting characters do. And um, so it's, it's, it's a bit odd. Uh, in fact, they actually have two different dubs for this film in English. Uh, in fact, I, I believe you will have three options to watch this on the Blu-ray, fingers crossed. There's the original Italian soundtrack, which I think is the best. It's the most satisfying mix of the film. I think it has the best music mix, and I think the character voices are um, the most emotional and interesting. So if you've never seen this before, try it in Italian with subtitles. I think it makes the most sense, and it's the most enjoyable. 
But there were two English dubs that were created. Uh, the first one was when the film debuted at Cannes, and you'll see uh, in, in a few minutes uh, from here uh, when Urbano Barberini shows up as Inspector Alan Santini, he originally had sort of a very high-pitched fey British accent, and it caused more than a little bit of giggling in the audience. So they went back and when they were shopping around for international distribution, they gave him an American accent, and it sounds very canned, and you can tell it was clearly not recorded with anyone else involved with the film. The, the room tone is different when he speaks. It, it just sounds very odd. But that's the version that most people heard. It's the one that uh, when every time it's hit American video, that's the version that you've heard. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's up to you. Try all three versions, see which one you like the best, but um, personally, I'd go for the Italian. So this was actually the 10th film, uh, full feature film, directed by Argento. And he wrote the, screen, the screenplay by himself after developing the story with his regular collaborator, Franco Frini, who had worked with him on Phenomena and who had written Demons 1 and 2. Uh, he would also go on to write The Church, and he worked with Argento on almost all of his films, up through Do You Like Hitchcock? Now, the opera house that you're seeing here uh, is uh, the Teatro Radio Opera House in Parma. Uh, and originally, they were going to shoot this at La Scala, which, of course, is the most famous opera house in Italy. Uh, but unfortunately, the schedule was booked nonstop, as it usually is there, and it proved to be impossible. And as I said, this had a much bigger budget than usual. Uh, they had $8 million to work with, and it shows on the screen. And this is a very lavish, very visually impressive film. Uh, it's, it's not quite as heavily stylized as, say, Suspiria or Inferno, but it definitely has a more um, lush look than, say, uh, Tenebrae or Phenomena. The colors are just very, very vibrant. Um, it has a very, very nice look to it, although the, you, know, you see the preponderance of blues throughout the film. You know, it emphasizes that sort of chilly, the coldness of the film also. I should also mention that this film, I think, has the record amount of Dario's ex-girlfriends in it. Uh, on the left, they're playing Julia, the wardrobe mistress. You have Coralina Cataldi Tassoni, who uh, is a wonderful actress. She was actually born in New York, grew up in Italy. Uh, she was uh, made her debut starring in Demons 2 as Sally, uh, with the sleeves that go back and forth. And uh, she's really fun in this film. Uh, I, I think she, she's probably the most liveliest performance in there. It's, it's a shame she didn't actually have a bigger part, but uh, she's a lot of fun. Of course, Dario Nicolotti, uh, playing Mira, is, was his longest uh, and most famous uh, ex-girlfriend. They were together for several years. Uh, they first worked together on Deep Red, in which she starred. And um, they went on to go uh, write Suspiria together under very contentious circumstances over who developed which idea. Uh, Nicoletti claims that the story was based on uh, experiences in her own family. So that's been an ongoing debate uh, for years. But she did not star in that film, although she has a cameo. Uh, but Nicoletti did go on to star uh, in Inferno and Tenebrae and Phenomena. Uh, the latter of which uh, has her most memorably unpleasant death scene uh, at the hands of a chimpanzee. So, of course, they were long broken up by the time they made this film, and she was very reluctant to do it. And sh her accounts have changed a bit uh, depending on when she was interviewed about this film. Uh, she said that she came because she thought that it would be a closure of sorts for them and that Mira was a strong sort of warrior-like figure. And other times she said she didn't want to do the film, but she did it because the death scene was spectacular, which it is. I, it's one of Argento's best scenes, I think. But either way, I, I think she's a lot of fun in the film as well. It's, it's, you know, it's a pleasure to hear her voice, and she's obviously uh, really giving a lot of energy to the character. 
So as you can see, the camera work in this film is, I think, among the most impressive uh, in, our, in Argento's uh, filmography. This was the first time that he worked with uh, a British cinematographer, in this case, Ronnie Taylor, although they'd actually um, tested out some techniques on a Fiat commercial shortly before this. So uh, they did a lot of Steadicam work. They employed a Skycam for some shots. Uh, it's very ambitious. This was supposed to be very technologically cutting edge uh, when the film was made, and it still shows. It's, it still looks very astounding by today's standards. Now, uh, Ronnie Taylor had been a camera operator for years. He worked on several Richard Attenborough films and graduated to full-time cinematographer on Gandhi, which, of course, won, uh, won the Oscar in the category. And uh, they later went on to work together on The Phantom of the Opera and Sleepless, uh, which is actually Taylor's last credit to date. Uh, before that, he was also a camera operator uh, on several films, including uh, Phantom of the Paradise, Theater of Blood, and as a full-time cinematographer, uh, he also worked uh, for Ken Russell on Tommy, uh, which of course is a fantastic looking film, uh, with other credits including High Road to China and then Champions before this. And after this, he went on to uh, such Hollywood films as Sea of Love and the uh, horror cult favorite, Popcorn. So quite a diverse filmography there. So opera came out at a very interesting time. Like I said, the, the Italian horror industry was actually starting to wind down, although people didn't quite realize it at the time because it was also starting to enjoy a huge surge of popularity in North America, uh, particularly in the U.S. There were a lot of younger fans who, thanks to home video and the whole fanzine movement, were really becoming aware of his films because up to that point, it was almost impossible to see them uncut. Suspiria had gotten a wide release, but uh, you know several highlights were chopped out of it. Uh, Tenebrae had come out, butchered to pieces, even on American VHS. It was really mutilated. Uh, phenomena had been cut down drastically. But um, you know the word was really starting to spread, and there was a documentary called Dario Argento's World of Horror that had come out, directed by Michele Suave on VHS, and that it also helped spread the word because it showed some highlights that people hadn't seen before. And so he had a huge fan base going. Uh, in fact, when the film was released, he made his very first horror convention appearance in North America. He brought this film with him and showed it in Italian with English subtitles. And so, of course, the demand was high. As soon as the word got out that this uh, film was coming out, you know, fans were really clamoring to see it, although it took quite a while before you could um, see a decent version of it. Uh, it opened in Italy uh, for Christmas in 1987, and the violence was so strong, unfortunately, that it got a youth-restricted rating that um, only adults could go in. And so they wound up pulling it quickly, and they edited it back down into um, a softer version that teens could see. And uh, there were several scenes that were snipped down. Um, this one was not. The, the death of the usher here was intact, but uh, several scenes later on um, were cut. For example, the uh, William McNamara death scene uh, with a knife in the mouth was trimmed down. Uh, the death of Julie was incoherent, actually, by the time they finished cutting it, um, as well as the shot of the raven swallowing the eyeball. So um, unfortunately, it, uh, you know, the, the movie lost a lot in the process. And that's the version that a lot of fans saw first. There was a bootleg VHS that uh, started making the rounds, but it was only in Italian with no English. English options, uh, which was the first way that I ever saw it. And I still love the film, even with uh, a lot of the gore taken out. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, fortunately, most people have seen the film either uncut or close to it, uh, which brings us to the very strange release history of the film after that point. Like I said, after Italy, uh, they shopped it around for international distribution. 
and it wound up being picked up for America by Orion, uh, which was a fairly big company at the time. Uh, they later went on to, of course, score uh, some Best Picture Oscar winners with Dances with Wolves and Silence of the Lambs. And the connection there was that this film was actually uh, produced by uh, Kichigori, a very large uh, Italian company, in collaboration with Dario Argento's company at the time, which was called DAC, although it's listed here, uh, it's an anagram of sorts, as ADC. Uh, anyway, so but they were the actual um, Italian distributor for Orion, so they had an in with them, and that's how that came about. Uh, but Orion had some problems with the film. They thought it was too long, and they thought the ending was a problem. They actually wanted to chop it down uh, completely um, after the burning scene in the theater before it switches to Switzerland. They wanted to just end it there and slam the credits on, but Argento refused. And so what they did instead was they just cut off the last bit um, after the killer's dragged off, before Betty goes, uh, you know, shuffling through the grass. That whole bit was uh, snipped off. And they made several other cuts to the film as well. Um, some of them really tiny, just, uh, you know, quick shots here and there. For example, there's a shot of Betty singing in here that was taken out. Uh, the shot of Mara Jakova throwing the perfume at the TV, and, or the shot of the perfume being poured down the sink, and some other bits here and there. So it wound up getting cut down to 96 minutes instead. And that version actually isn't bad. Uh, that actually debuted uh, first on home video on Japanese Laserdisc from RCA Columbia. And it's a, actually a really gorgeous transfer. I think it's one of the most beautiful Laserdiscs that ever came out. Uh, but that wasn't English, and it had all the gore intact. So for many people, that was the first time they could actually see the film with uh, all of the, the original level of violence. So, of course, uh, again, the theatrical uh, plans for this in America did not come to pass. Uh, Orion wanted to call it Terror at the Opera, which is a title that has stuck with it uh, on and off throughout the years. Um, it's not a great title, unfortunately, but I think opera is far preferable, but, you know, so be it. Uh, eventually, it did show up uh, as uh, Terror at the Opera on American VHS from Southgate, uh, along with the church that came out on the same day. Uh, it was uncut, uh, but cropped. But at least it was, uh, you know, the first time you could really see the film complete and in English, uh, pretty much anywhere, I believe. And uh, since then, it's uh, it's been on video many, many times. Uh, you know, usually in English, uh, it's alternated between the can English track and the other English track most of the time. You'll notice, uh, for example, uh, from Arrow Video in the UK, they've actually um, it's actually come out twice uh, with diff the different soundtracks, um, as well as the American cut on one version of it. So, so many different uh, versions out there. It's it's a little uh, bewildering. And of course, it's uh, prior to this release, it's been on Blu-ray twice. There was one in Japan, and then there was one in Germany. Uh, the Japanese one looks atrocious. Don't even bother with it. Uh, the German one is better and has some extras. But hopefully, you'll be happy, uh, happiest with this one. Uh, I think it has uh, probably the happiest amount of extras, and it gives you the most audio options. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's had more work done on the videos. So uh, this is probably the best it's going to be until they, uh, they ever fork, uh, fork up for a 4K version somewhere down the road. Now, of course, now we have to talk about the aspect ratio of the film, which is something that's been very confusing over the years. This was shot uh, in the earlier days of a process called Super 35, which uh, is a 35-millimeter process that allowed you to uh, show the film in scope. It allowed enough um, information taken up on the negative and for you to compose it so that it could be shown uh, in the 2 through 5 aspect ratio. But primarily because TV was so big at the time, uh, you had the option of also opening it up at the top and bottom. So it was actually shot um, with the aperture wider so that you had more information on the top and bottom that you could play with when it was being transferred for home video. Uh, you would see that actually uh, some other directors played with this a lot. James Cameron, most notably, shot a lot of his sequences in Super 35. So you'll notice if you watch the, um, the full frame version of his films on TV or VHS, you'll notice that there's actually more in some shots on top and the bottom. 
<laughs> it's basically a variation on the, the open mat uh, process, which is where you know a lot of times uh, films that are in the um, more uh, narrow rectangular format of uh, 1.85 to 1, uh, they would be actually be shot with extra headroom for TV, so you would just basically uh, take the mats off and you'd wind up seeing more on the top and the bottom. Of course, in some films, uh, like Pee's Big Adventure, of course, it proved to be ruinous and it, it destroyed some of the special effects in the process, but so you have to be really careful with that. Now, what's odd with opera is that it was shown in Italy at 235-1, and that is how Argento showed it uh, when he brought it over to America. However, uh, the Japanese Laserdisc was a, full a somewhat cropped version of the 185 version, and that's also how it came out on DVD in Italy. It was 185-1. And it's hard to say which one's better, actually. If you look at them, some of the compositions on the 185 one actually look better. It gives you more headroom, and I think it's more aesthetically pleasing, but then there are some shots that clearly weren't quite meant to be that way. For example, when Betty and... Um, when uh, William McMara and Christina are in bed uh, together, you can see that she's wearing underwear, which I don't believe is supposed to be uh, visible in the shot. So we'll assume that the 2351 is the one that is intended, although I think either way works. So you may want to try watching both and see which one you prefer. Now, of course, as I said, this was Argento's 10th film, and he, of course, was known as a director of thrillers. He'd only really done one film at this point that was not a horror or suspense film called Five Days of Milan. And he was really, you know, the, the leading light of uh, the Italian horror scene at this time. Of course, Mario Bava was long gone at this point. And um, so expectations were really high. And, uh, you know, a lot. Of, it was regular that people would be pulled in Italy about, you know, what should Dario do next, what project should he do? And one title that popped up a lot was Stand of the Opera. And of course, he wound up doing a sort of straighter adaptation of that uh, with Julian Sands and Ozzy Argento later on. But this one obviously takes quite a bit from Fano of the Opera, at least from the original novel, in the structure of you know the understudy uh, being pulled in and the obsessive admirer and the watching her from the box and you know bumping people off in the opera house. So it's it's definitely his sort of jalo take on the material. And it even has a little bit of that sort of twisted romantic side to it once we find out the motive uh, for what's behind it. So as I mentioned before, this, actually, this scene right here is one that was uh, trimmed out of some English language prints. Uh, unfortunately, it's some neat little camera work here. Now what's interesting is that Orion actually did strike some prints uh, for this film, and the American prints were intended to be 185 to 1. Uh, MGM actually has a few of the prints, and uh, I believe they still have the original negative material for that version. Uh, but it has shown a few times theatrically in the U.S. Uh, in repertory screenings. It's a beautiful print uh, if you ever get to see one of the Orion versions. It looks really amazing on the big screen. You should check it out. Um, even though, like I said, it's missing some bits like, uh, like that scene. So now I should mention that uh, Urbano Barberini, uh, he had a, uh, he really was, came from a very famous and very rich um, Italian aristocratic family. So he wasn't acting out of necessity. He basically did it for fun. And for a long time, he didn't even tell his family that he was doing it. Uh, but his first really big role had been in uh, Demons. Um, again, which was Argento produced and Lamberto Bava directed. And um, he's actually had a really long running career uh, in Italy. Um, it's a shame that he's actually dubbed in this film because his English-speaking voice is, is actually really nice. He has a, a very uh, a beautiful, deep voice that I think would have probably suited this role very well. So I'm not really sure why they felt the need to replace it, especially since his name is Alan Santini. He's supposed to be Italian anyway. So having him be British or American doesn't really make a lot of sense. But, you know, that's the way it is, unfortunately. 
And this is actually the very first piece of original score that you're hearing in the film right now. We're uh, 12 minutes in, and uh, it's all been either uh, mostly source music up to this point. But uh, this is a piece called Black Notes by Bill Wyman and Terry Taylor, who had written uh, the um, piece uh, The Valley for uh, Phenomena, the plays over the opening credits. Uh, and again, this is a really interesting, uh, lovely piece of sort of uh, new, new age music here. And the soundtrack for opera is something, again, that's been very contentious over the years. Both this, opera, and demons uh, make use of the more traditional soundtrack music that you would expect to hear, uh, as well as heavy metal and some other out-of-left-field music selections, uh, which, especially for audiences today, they you know tend to provoke some really quizzical looks, uh, at the very least. So here you actually have sort of, uh, you have a lot of new age music, you have opera music, you have metal, and then you have some music by uh, Claudio Simonetti, which we'll get into a little bit later. But it's a very odd mix. I should mention that obviously all the opera music in, in this film was pre-recorded. You can actually hear a lot of uh, Maria Callas and some other very famous singers uh, on the soundtrack here. Uh, obviously Christine did not do any of her own singing, <laughs> of course. So, uh, back to the idea that Argento, of course, was, was known as sort of the, the major name in, in Giallo films, but he's very clearly playing around with the conventions of it at this point. In fact, throughout the 80s, it's actually, you can see him sort of pulling it apart and playing with it and putting it back together in unusual ways. Tenebrae, obviously, it, it pretty much subverted the formula by, uh, well, I won't give it away if you haven't seen it, but um, he essentially twists it around and upside down, he does sort of an Agatha Christie-style twist on it uh, at the end. It makes you sort of question the way the whole genre operates. And then Phenomena, of course, introduced a strong supernatural element, um, which, again, was not unheard of. Deep Red had a little bit of it with the psychic thing, but Phenomena went really whole hog with it. And here again, you have it with the Ravens, the telepathic uh, you know, Avengers, of course, uh, another supernatural bit there. Now, this, uh, most of the sequence was actually directed uh, by second unit director, uh, Michele Suave, who I had mentioned had done Stage Fright. Uh, he was brought in uh, mainly out of necessity. He had worked on some other uh, Argento and Lucio Fulci films before this, uh, but he was starting to come into his own as a director in his own right. And you could actually see him later in the film briefly. He plays the uh, dead <laughs> uh, uh, police officer, Daniele Suave, uh, when, he, when he falls out of the closet later on in the film. Uh, but again, this is a really beautifully shot scene. And uh, now, originally, the script only had um, one raven, and then it became a couple of ravens. But uh, by the time the film was shot, they actually had at the height, I believe, it was 120 ravens were employed throughout the film. Uh, although, with them being, uh, you know, set loose during the opera sequences, about half of them wound up being lost and couldn't be retrieved. So, uh, God knows if they, any of them are still living inside the opera house. You know, who knows? But. Um, Argento was definitely um, not going for a straightforward giallo at this point. If you try to think about this film on any kind of logical level, it, it really sort of collapses. It doesn't really make any sense at all if you try to pull the story apart. Uh, it has sort of a dream logic to it, and I think that's the best way to watch it. Um, it's, it's just such an enjoyable film to look at. And I, if you watch in Italian, it makes a bit more sense. Um, although, again, the backstory just doesn't, it, it's, you know, it, it doesn't quite add up on a lot of levels when you think about it. Uh, for example, if you think about the fact that uh, uh, the age difference between the two characters confuses a lot of people. Uh, oh, actually, I probably should mention this on the soundtrack. This is the second piece you're hearing. This is from the beginning, uh, which is uh, written by Brian Eno, again, another new age piece. Uh, he originally had submitted uh, approximately 45 minutes of score for the film, uh, but this is the only piece that made it into the final cut, and it's the only piece on the soundtrack, oddly enough. Uh, but it's a nice little ambient piece you hear a couple times throughout the film. So as I was saying, uh, 
Barberini was actually 26 when this film was released, and uh, Christina Marslock was 24. So you've only got a two-year age difference, and I think that's what muddles the plot for a lot of people because we're supposed. I assume you've seen the film by this point. I'm going to ruin it. So he's supposed to be the killer, and that he had this long-running affair with Betty's mother, and that he had killed her um, because he wasn't allowed to touch her, so he would kidnap and murder women in front of her for her pleasure, and that he's trying to uh, repeat the process with Betty and have her fall in love with him, and that he can actually have a physical relationship with her and carry on the, the murder scenarios for her. Um, but if they're only two years apart, and if you look at the flashbacks, Betty is clearly maybe, what, 10 years old, 11 years old, which means he's supposed to be this 12-year-old boy running around kidnapping and killing women, which doesn't seem very plausible but you know they obviously try to make him look older by you know putting a beard on him and some glasses in a few scenes but it's very obvious he's only in his you know in his uh, mid 20s so Now, uh, Barberini, uh, is, he was still sort of learning English at this point. It wasn't quite as developed as it is now. You could actually see him later on in uh, Casino Royale, the, uh, the Martin Campbell one, not the 60s one, obviously. And he actually had an opera connection before this. He had appeared as Cassio in Franco Zeffirelli's 1986 uh, film of another uh, Giuseppe Verdi-based uh, Shakespeare opera, Otello, which had come out from Canon Films. Uh, he was dubbed for that. Obviously, he couldn't sing opera, but he's... Um, you know, he actually did a good job in the film. He's the uh, character that Desdemona is supposed to be sleeping with, according to Iago. But, so obviously he did not have to mime to any opera in this film, however. Now this is what the uh, scene I was mentioning before where it's different if you watch the uh, 185 or the 235 version. It plays uh, a bit differently, so you might have fun trying to compare how the two uh, look together. And uh, we probably should uh, go into the fact that uh, Giuseppe Verdi is, uh, was very famous for writing several operas based on uh, Shakespeare. Uh, Macbeth was actually his 10th opera, which is a nice bit of symmetry since this was Argento's 10th film, so it actually works. And, uh, but he had written several films, Mary w uh, several operas, excuse me, uh, Mary Wives of Windsor, for example. And um, he, uh, Macbeth was one of his earlier ones, and uh, it was first performed in 1847. And uh, contrary to what this film would have you believe, it, the, the Macbeth curse really applies more to the Shakespeare play than to the actual opera. Uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth is uh, often referred to as the Scottish play by anyone in the theater. In fact, if you aren't actually rehearsing or performing the film, you aren't supposed to refer to it by name. It's considered bad luck that misfortune will befall you uh, if you say the name inside a theater. And so uh, whenever someone says the Scottish play, that's what they're referring to. Now, the origin of that uh, apparently is most likely due to the three witches uh, in the play that uh, supposedly Shakespeare had used parts of real incantations. Um, and so apparently that if you, um, you know, if you perform the, if you perform the play or if you say the name of it, uh, you know, disrespectfully or um, unnecessarily that uh, misfortune will befall you. But some of that uh, spilled over into the opera a bit, uh, which is a, a plot point in this film, of course. Um, although, interesting enough, you never see the witches. Uh, you only see Lady Macbeth uh, and Macbeth himself on stage. So, uh, But uh, Misfortune did befall uh, several people during the film. Of course, um, Argento's father passed away um, as they were starting it. Uh, there was the Ian Charleston car wreck. Uh, of course, there are the difficulties with the leading lady and on and on and on. Um, and Argento was in a very uh, depressed state when the film was done and um, went on a bit of soul-searching afterwards. And, of course, this would actually be his last Italian film for quite a while. He uh, went on to uh, shoot To Evil Eyes, the anthology uh, two-parter with George Romero in Pittsburgh, and his next full feature was Trauma, which was shot in Minneapolis. 
Uh, and eventually, of course, he would, um, you know, stop trying to make films in America. He found the process frustrating and went back to Italy, where he made uh, films like Stendhal Syndrome, Phantom of the Opera, Sleepless, on and on and on. Now, of course, here we have the most famous image of the film, which is the needles under the eyeballs, uh, which is just a fantastic conceit. Uh, it was sort of a sadistic uh, joke that he came up with because Argento said in several interviews that he was always frustrated when moviegoers would cover their eyes uh, when they were watching his films during the, the most shocking moments, and he you know, always wanted to think of a way to make them look no matter what. So we came up with this sort of sadistic uh, jallo spin on A Clockwork Orange, where you actually have needles forcing the spectator's eyes open, so they have to watch no matter what, which is kind of a fun I idea, and I think he pulled it off really well. Now, actually, this uh, this was also a very uh, heavily covered film uh, when it was made. There's a lot of documentary footage behind the scenes, and one really great uh, piece about the film was written by Alan Jones, the, the wonderful writer and um, chronicle of Argento's productions, who was on uh, the set several times. And uh, I hope someday he will actually do a commentary for this film himself, since he was there, and I'm sure he has tons of stories. But he wrote a really good piece about this for the March 1988 issue of Cinefantastique, where he talked about the uh, the needle idea and how the origin of that where um, he wanted to find a way to force someone to, uh, to quote, to watch the most gruesome murder and make sure they can't avert their eyes. And in this case, the murderer needs her to see it all as her enforced restraint will bring the ultimate orgasm, the perpetuation of death being the clearest act of love. And uh, obviously that, that connection was um, a bit much for some audiences. Again, this is one of his most harsh and, and violent films. Uh, you know, especially uh, the, the sequences with the needles. It's, it's it's pretty tough going, but it's just it's such a, a fascinating idea, and it's so cinematic. It, it takes the whole Hitchcock voyeurism idea just absolutely just you know through the roof to the most sadistic links you can imagine possible. Now, of course, uh, this is uh, the first of several heavy metal tracks you'll hear in the film, which, I, as I've said, are very. Um, uh, controversial, to put it mildly. Uh, people either like it or they don't. Uh, but this uh, particular song is called Knights of the Night by a group called Steel Grave. Uh, their real name was actually uh, Gal G-O-W. They were formed in 1980, and uh, they're actually still active. Uh, they took a hiatus from 1995 to 2011, but they're still, uh, they still perform, and they have a good online presence if you want to hear more. So. Now, in complete contrast, here we have the very first uh, piece in the film by Claudio Simonetti, a uh, name most of uh, your Argento fans will be more than familiar with. He uh, originated as uh, the keyboardist for the band Goblin, which, of course, made a big splash with the score for Deep Red when they took over from Giorgio Gaslini. Uh, after the, that was uh, their first real soundtrack after their, uh, an album they had recorded under the name uh, Cherry Five. And, of course, they went on to score uh, Suspiria, and uh, three of the members went on to do Tenebrae. And then uh, Simonetti wound up leaving the group. He's been sort of on and off over the years. It's, um, they're a very volatile group, to put it mildly. Uh, in fact, Simonetti now has a, a separate group called Claudio Simonetti's Goblin, uh, which is sort of the descendant of a group he had called Demonia. It's all kind of like a soap opera and very hard to keep track of. But they did, he did tour with Goblin um, sort of in most of its original incarnation for a while. And they did some U.S. appearances uh, on tour. So if you saw them, count yourself very lucky because it doesn't seem like that will happen again. But this is a really lovely piece called, called Opera, obviously, uh, you know, with the operating voice going on the like, soundtrack. And it's a continuation of sorts of the theme that he wrote for Phenomena, uh, which is also one of his best. But it's, you know, when, when Seminetti's really firing on all thrusters, he's really hard to top. It's, it just has this amazing... Yeah, for the, these soaring melodies that just that perfectly counteract the, the horror of the films that he's writing for. And he's, uh, he's, he's been an Argento staple for quite a while, obviously. Um, he's not listed as the... Uh 
And so, uh, but uh, Simone was uh, definitely Argento's voice for the most part for the past, uh, you know, decade and a half or so. Uh, he did reunite with Goblin uh, briefly when they did the score for Sleepless, um, which is great. And uh, kind of the last uh, real hurrah for the group as far as Argento's scoring goes. Now, Goblin still uh, records under that name uh, separately. They did a, an album called Back to the Goblin, a few other efforts here and there. Um, where Simonetti uh, has, uh, you know, he, he, he's been on and off with Dario. After this film, of course, Dario did, um, you know, two projects with Pion Dinaggio and then two with uh, Ennio Morricone. But it's pretty much been Simonetti since then. Films like The Card Player, his two Masters of Horror episodes, uh, Jennifer and uh, Pelts, and of course, uh, Dracula 3D. Now, the uh, piece you're hearing uh, playing while they're in the car here is actually um, a piece called Opera Theme which is another one that was written by uh, Bill Wyman and uh, Terry Taylor uh, for the film. Now, I should probably mention that the soundtrack situation for this film is a little bit confusing as well. There have been various versions over, over the years, and it's a little hard keeping track of what's what. Uh, for, so first, originally on vinyl, there was a soundtrack released by Cinevox. It was the Claudio Simonetti music, and it had uh, the Steelgrave uh, songs, which we'll get into uh, a little more later, but the, the two songs by Steelgrave, and some classical selections. And now, um, Simonetti wrote quite a bit of music that did not get used in the film. Uh, there's a piece called, uh, called Cosmo, for example, and um, you can hear some of, some of the music that he wrote is very faint in the film, depending on which version you watch. The soundtracks are mixed differently. Uh, but a lot of the music that he wrote didn't make it in there. Uh, so you'll notice the Simonetti soundtrack has quite a bit that you won't hear, as well as several reperformed versions um, as Demonia. Now, um, but that was the first uh, Italian vinyl one, it was just the, the straight Simonetti music um, that he recorded for the film and the classical and the steel grave. Now, Cinevox put out a CD uh, around the same time that was everything but the Simonetti music. It was uh, some of the same opera music, some different. Uh, and then it had the Bill Wyman, Terry Taylor pieces and the uh, Roger and Brian Eno pieces. So that was all we had for quite a long time. And then in Japan, they did a, a version as well from SLC that was the non-Simonetti one. And the first time the Claudia Simonetti score appeared on CD was when Blue Underground, or originally Anchor Bay, uh, released their uh, two-disc limited edition on DVD, which was later reissued by Blue Underground, uh, you know, minus the CD when you find the general retail version of it. So, uh, but that was uh, the Simonetti score with some expanded tracks. So if you have that, that's what's been re-released over the years in various different versions. Uh, he's, it's been out uh, several times. So now it's actually harder to find the other Cinevox soundtrack <laughs> uh, without the Simonetti. So, but, you know, if you're a fan, you may want to pick up both because there was just an absolutely huge amount of music written for this film that didn't go in. It's actually, I think it's like 104 minutes of music uh, total uh, between the two soundtracks, so it's almost as much as the running time of the film itself. Now, what you'll actually notice is there's not a whole lot of original score that you hear in the film. Most of it is opera music um, or heavy metal, but the original score content is, is fairly low uh, in the film. And again, a lot of it is shoved way into the background, which is odd because normally... Um, Argento would shove his soundtracks very front and center. They're very aggressive. Um, you know, so this is a bit of a change of pace for him. And again, this is a very jolly-ish scene, you know, with uh, someone outside the phone booth, or maybe not, someone watching her. Um, 
And it's interesting that for a film that uh, has a reputation for being cold, Argento has said this is, uh, you know, if you, if you watch the featurette on the old Anchorbatus, he said this was his response to the, uh, the AIDS epidemic that was, you know, uh, causing just massive shifts in the way people perceived, you know, relationships and sexuality and love. Um, but there, there, I think there is some tenderness in the film. Uh, you'll see it creeping out here and then. Like this scene here, I think Mark and Betty have an interesting relationship, and a lot of that's due to, I think, Ian Charlson's performance. Um, he's, he's really good in the film. Uh, it, it's a shame that um, a lot of his work is really hard to see now because some of it was for television or films that didn't make it um, across the pond, as it were. Uh, but he's a really fine actor. And I think he's actually a really interesting choice for this film. Uh, now, that's another thing that, that tends to shift around depending on when Argento was interviewed about the film because originally he said that... Uh, uh, generally, Mark was not supposed to be autobiographical at all, despite the fact that he's obviously a horror director um, who's, who's making a go at doing an opera, uh, you know, which is based on something that happened to Argento himself. He was supposed to mount a production of Rigoletto in 1985, and when he announced that he wanted to, although keeping it faithful to the original opera, that he wanted to introduce elements of, of vampirism and make it much darker and more gothic, and so they basically agreed to part ways that that just wasn't going to fly, so someone else was brought in to direct it. Uh, so a lot of that inspired this film. Uh, so you can, that's obviously in the character. And uh, the scene where they're reading reviews later on um, is, is very clearly uh, uh, something that is built from Argento's personal life. And of course, Charleston said, again, the, uh, if you read the Alan Jones piece on the set, Charleston did say that he was pulling some mannerisms and, and comments and changing some dialogue and basing it on Argento himself, which I guess he was not aware of. But later on, our, uh, you know, Argento has since said that the role is definitely um, semi-autobiographical, which makes the film kind of more fun to watch. Um, I don't think the character is as, as mean and negative as um, he was originally uh, depicted uh, you know, in interviews when the film was coming out. It's, I think he's actually kind of an interesting character. Um, I wish he had a more um, substantial end. I think he exits the film in kind of an offhanded manner. Um, it's a lot, but we'll get to that later on. So, no, uh, since we're obviously hearing some opera music here, I should mention that Argento's own history uh, with opera music extends uh, quite far, actually, aside from the, uh, the Rigoletto incident, uh, which was an opera he was going to do with Sergio Stivaletti, who, of course, uh, has done the, um, the, the animatronic effects and a lot of makeup for, for many of his films, uh, Phenomena, and he also worked on Demons, Demons 2, and many films since then. Uh, so that didn't come to pass, but... Um, now, for example, in uh, Inferno, which was the sequel to Spuria, he used another piece uh, by Verdi, uh, the Vapensiero uh, chorus from Nabucco, which was uh, employed in two very memorable sequences in that film, first in the Music Academy scene, and then later on uh, the murder of actor uh, Gabriele Lavia uh, in the apartment building. So uh, he, he definitely knew how to use opera music in, an, in a very interesting cinematic way, even if that wasn't his preferred um, genre of music. Uh, so I, the choice, of course, obviously to make a film called Opera was, uh, you, you know, was, people sort of gasped at sort of what, a, what an audacious idea that was, that he's someone who was known for using rock music and, um, you know, being very modern and advanced would do a film on that subject. But of course, as we know, that, that actually worked out very well. I, I it was a very interesting choice. Uh, and so, of course, uh, it's also worth mentioning that uh, Argento did go on to mount his own production of Macbeth, uh, the Giuseppe Verdi opera, in uh, 2015 uh, for the Teatro Coccia in Navarra. 
and uh, you can actually find that on Blu-ray and DVD. It's out, and it's actually worth watching. It's a good case study in how his style has changed over the years. Um, obviously, decades have passed between the two, and it's more reflective of where he is now as a director in that it's much more um, spare, much more dark, uh, visually dark. I mean, it's just bathed in shadows, and, of course, the three witches in this one are, uh, are nude and uh, very top-heavy, which is something that's been a, a, trade, a trademark in... Uh, a lot of his films later. Um, that's an odd element that he started to introduce. I think Sleepless was really the turning point where um, he started seeing some, shall we say, uh, artificially enhanced uh, actresses um, started to pop up in his films. Now here we have, uh, again, I mentioned that there are a lot of ex-girlfriends, and here's another one. This is Antonella Vitale, who is a model who took a go at acting, and uh, she was actually Argento's girlfriend during the shoot, and they were together for a couple of years. She wound up uh, appearing in The Church, which was the film that Argento produced with Michele Suave directing after this. She's the one who gets stuck uh, in the, the wedding dress in the door uh, when the guy's running at her with the, the, the sharp gate and almost uh, hits her in the throat. So that's her. And uh, this is a kind of a little scene. This is one of the ones where Charlson uh, improvised a bit and added his own dialogue. And if you listen in the background, depending again on which version you're watching, you can hear another uh, Simonetti piece called Crows, also called Craws, depending on the soundtrack that you have. But it's uh, kind of gurgling in the radio in the background there a little bit. Uh, but in some versions, you, it's mixed so low you can barely even tell what it is. Oh, but that's been a very popular piece as well. It's popped up a lot over the years. Nice little, uh, I don't know if this is a deliberate homage to stage right here, but with the, the floating feather, it looks like something out of uh, the Suave film. So it's a neat little, little touch there. And of course we have, like here, we have most of the cast of characters uh, throughout the film, many of whom, again, don't even have names, uh, which is where you have to actually point out that um, as much uh, hoopla as there was over the killer's identity for this film, it was supposed to be a very big top secret uh, reveal that even most of the actors had no idea, but it's extremely obvious who it is. I mean, even if you're watching the film for the first time with no knowledge, there's really only one possible suspect that it could be. So it's not much of a shocker when you find out. Now, this is a trick that um, Argento had tried to pull before. If you look at uh, Four Flies on Grave Velvet, and especially Deep Red, he, he pretty much whittles the cast down so that there is only one possibility. Uh, of course, Deep Red's the most brilliant example because it's still, it, there's only one other character that it could be, but it's someone you would never, ever suspect uh, or connect with the murders in any way, which is why it works so well. Because, of course, in this one, you know, by the time you have uh, the uh, police inspector coming you know, to the apartment later on and the whole switcheroo going on there, it's, there's really no one else that it could possibly be. So, uh, fortunately, the reveal's done, and it's such a... A, a crazy uh, through the roof fashion that it's you know so much fun it doesn't matter if you guess it or not but as a whodunit uh, you know you'd, you'd have to have never basically never seen a, a murder mystery before if you have no idea that uh, Inspector Allen's the one behind it a little uh, metaphysical uh, cinematic dialogue here about uh, how you define reality which of course is a running theme through his films as well <laughs> Now, of course, uh, we're about to get to uh, Coralina's uh, big scene in the film. And like I said, I, th I think she's uh, one of the most enjoyable aspects of the film. I think she's uh, really fun. You can see her in the background there, uh, you know, chain-smoking away. And, uh, but uh, she, she's always a lot of fun to watch, I think. And uh, I think she also has, like, this really great outfit that she has on. And, of course, she has a British accent again, which is, uh, you know, odd. But if you know her real speaking voice, it's actually quite lovely. 
But um, again, she's playing the joy of the wardrobe mistress. And uh, she also went on to appear in Phantom of the Opera, the Argento one, uh, for a role that he created specifically for her. It has nothing to do with the uh, Gaston Rue novel. And oddly enough, Phantom of the Opera, he, he did make it far more romantic than the source novel, whereas you know, in this film, the, it's sort of an anti-romance in a way. Uh, which is interesting. But uh, Coralina actually came from a, uh, a strong opera background herself. Uh, her father was a very famous opera director and her mother was a mezzo-soprano. So she grew up around it and uh, she was actually a stage performer as well from a very young age. So she really had opera in the blood and her uh, grandfather was also a conductor for Puccini. So uh, it might have been interesting had she actually played Betty. Uh, you know, she was also very young at the time. I think she was probably maybe about the same age, maybe a bit younger. So it could have been interesting. You can play some fun casting games with this film and try swapping people out, think about how it might have turned out. Uh, anyway, but uh, again, like I said, she and Argento were together for a while, and they had actually uh, hosted a, a really odd uh, TV show called Jallo uh, right around the same time, uh, which was kind of a combination reality game show type uh, type thing uh, it's odd you can find uh, copies recorded from TV floating around it's it's um, a very strange show I hope someday somebody subtitles it because it's um, it's a little tough to follow if you don't speak Italian fluently I think I have some really uh, beautiful camera work in the scene from uh, Ronnie Taylor uh, it's uh, some of the feats that he pulls off in, in this are really nice uh, coming up you have the nice effect where you have the lens of the camera actually like pulsing along with the killer's brain uh, as he's sort of entering this um, schizophrenic fugue state that he goes into uh, when he tries to, when he's planning to kill someone. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really uh, nifty effect, some really nice uh, steady cam work here as well. It's, uh, that's kind of a trademark of Italian films at the time. You see a lot of this really mobile, just, you know, insanely elaborate camera work. Um, they also used a Luma crane on this, which of course Argento had famously used uh, on Tenebrae, the uh, crawling over the apartment building scene in which he later also had in uh, Phenomena, uh, when it's the cameras like soaring up over the trees at the beginning of the film. So I, the idea was he just essentially take that idea and just really push it as far as it would go in the film. You notice the camera just almost never stops moving. It's just going and going and going. Uh, which is why I think the film is also just so much fun to watch. It's it's a film that, you know, if you're in the right frame of mind, you could pretty much dive into it any time. It's, it's so engrossing. It's so much fun, I think. And again, you have, like, these, these sort of these tight, unnerving close-ups, which, again, are an Argento trademark. Uh, you know, it's uh, less seeing the mechanics of things, how they, how they work, how they're pulling apart. You know, we usually will show, uh, it's, it's kind of the Hitchcock thing with the dialing for murder, showing how the operation of the phone inside, which he also used in Four Flies. But, um, Again, you see a lot of that in here, these sort of unnerving, like super ultra uh, macro close-ups, um, like when Julie's pulling the dress apart. And since she's about to find the, uh, the incriminating um, anniversary piece of jewelry, uh, I should note that, again, people have had um, trouble over the years, again, sort of parsing what was going on, the, the, the killer's motive in this film, uh, which is a lot of it's due to the, uh, the fact that they've seen the dub with Barberini's voice where you can barely understand him, where he's kind of muttering really low. Um, but this is where you know, the clues start to drop, although, again, the, 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 uh, the bracelet never turns up again, so you know, it's more red herring than anything. But the gist of the film, in, in case you were confused, is that um, as a young girl, Betty's mother was a very famous opera singer and that she had entranced Alan as a younger man or boy or, you know, never really clear. But um, that they had this arrangement where, you know, again, he would, he would uh, bring women home, which is the flashbacks you're seeing with the women struggling and screaming and um, being killed and being tied up. So um, but that was all done for the enjoyment of Betty's mother, who was played by Christina with a wig on. So when you see Christina with the curly wig, that's supposed to be her mother. And the little girl is is, uh, is Betty, who witnessed these things and uh, 
uh, had somehow tried to block them out of her mind and thought that these things were dreams or hallucinations that she had as a child. And so um, obviously uh, Alan has been lying in wait for the return of uh, someone who would ignite the... Uh, the, the spark in him that Betty's mother did, and so of course when Betty uh, comes out and as, as the understudy and sings, then that's uh, when he says you finally returned. It's uh, he thinks it's essentially the second coming of her mother, and that if he uh, does these sort of uh, sexualized murder offerings, that will sort of trigger a, uh, a hunger inside her, and that they'll go off together. So, which actually is something that was explored more in the original scripted ending, but we'll go into that uh, when we get close to the end of the film because that's a whole other different issue there. And it's also worth mentioning that um, obviously the uh, the interior scenes that are not inside the opera house, but the backstage shots and uh, the apartment and everything, uh, all of this was done uh, actually at uh, De Paulus uh, Studios in uh, in Rome, which is where Argento shot uh, his previous films. Uh, you'll notice that a lot of the interiors were done, uh, like Suspiria and Inferno and all those, uh, those amazing interior uh, scenes were all done there. So that was kind of his home. It was sort of the more... Um, a slightly more down-market version of Cinecitta uh, at the time. And uh, unfortunately, as I said before, the Italian film industry was really starting to um, to slide, uh, especially the genre cinema. It was much harder for um, horror films to find a way into theaters uh, outside of Italy. Even inside Italy, it was, it was getting a little bit tougher because uh, people were really migrating more towards television, which is really taking over. It was you know, very cheap TV shows, and all the younger talent were migrating that way. And uh, so the writing was kind of on the wall uh, when this film was made, and it just seemed by the 90s it, it had really dissipated entirely. And so uh, the studio where this was shot is now um, RAI, uh, uses it for their production space strictly for television, uh, unfortunately. So uh, those uh, glory days are long gone, unfortunately, but at least uh, we have films like this to remind us of what they could achieve at that, in, in that space at that time. Now, of course, uh, you know, Italian horror film hadn't died out entirely. I mean, this wasn't really the golden age anymore when this film was made. I mean, that would, that would definitely be, uh, you know, the, the, the mid-60s, uh, probably up until uh, the mid-70s, probably, and then uh, some decay started to set in a bit. But it was still chugging along. You had people like Lucio Fulci who gave it a shot in the arm, uh, you know, with uh, Zombie, and then into the 80s with things like The Beyond and uh, House by the Cemetery. And, of course, Argento was... Still going on strong in the 80s, he had done Tenebrae and uh, Phenomena. Not his most prolific decade, really, um, because he, he was also branching out into producing and doing more TV work, so his attention was distracted a bit. And his films were getting much more uh, ambitious, obviously. I mean, Phenomena and this film are very big productions, uh, very clearly when you watch them. Uh, just very, very uh, you know, ambitious, so lots of ideas floating around. And so that's what makes them both fascinating and somewhat difficult for some people to grasp, and that they're not just these straightforward thrillers. There's a lot of... Um, you know, they're almost like compulsions put on film. They're these fever dreams, and uh, which I think is what makes them so fascinating. If if you uh, don't try to approach it as a straightforward mystery uh, mystery thriller, but uh, so you know, like Lucio Fulci, for example, it, it was. Uh, you know, the passion obviously wasn't there anymore. He, he his later films are fun, of course, but. Uh, you know, by the time you got to films like Enigma and Demonia and things like that, it's clearly not on the same level. And so a lot of the old guard was fading, and you had some new hopes. Uh, probably after this film, Opera Opera is kind of the swan song for the, these big, grandiose um, uh, horror films. Um, but of course, the last truly great one to come out that played theatrically would be Suave's uh, Della Morte Della More, which played in the U.S. as Cemetery Man, which is a terrible title. Uh, but Della Morte Della More is, is really, you know, the, kind of the, the the period at the end of the sentence when it comes to Italian horror films, in the, in, you know, theatrically at least, unfortunately. 
Um, but you know, but Suave was, uh, you know, among the younger guard, he was really the last real hope. And uh, now he, he's pretty much moved entirely over to TV and non-genre fare, unfortunately, after he tried to take a long break to take care of his son. Uh, but you know, between uh, between that and the church and the sect, you know, he, he really had a good run as well. But of course, then you have Argento is still at it, and. Um, yeah, that's uh, obviously a, a tricky subject. People have very different opinions, um, but it's very clear that uh, the director who made this film was, um, you know, in transition. I think this is sort of a farewell, uh, in a way, uh, to the to the style of filmmaking because after this, it was definitely a shift. I mean, once he went to America, I, I think Trauma is actually an underrated film. Uh, it's there's some really fantastic stuff in it, but it's a very different aesthetic. You can tell that something has shifted very clearly in that film and with Two Evil Eyes. So by the time he came back to Italy, you know, the man who made this film, uh, I, I, you know, had, had gone through some considerable changes, um, very obviously. Uh, for example, he started using Asia as his leading lady, which is something that's been very uh, <laughs> uh, troubling to some people uh, in the way that she's presented and the fact that uh, she is often shown in very sexualized or very exposed uh, ways in their films together. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, I think, I think it's fascinating to watch how it's evolved with films like Trauma and Onda Stendhal and... Um, you know, and of course with, uh, with Dracula and Fan of the Opera, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting, um, but it kind of goes to some more uncomfortable places, obviously. And, uh, you know, clearly the sexuality really went through the roof um, after this film, the nudity and everything. It, uh, you know, it started to become much more sort of uncomfortable and tawdry. You could see it because, you know, uh, glimmers of that in Tenebrae, obviously, with the, the, the scene with the, with the lesbians in the apartment. But, um, you know, by the time you get to uh, Stendhal Syndrome and... Uh, Fan of the Opera and Dracula in particular, uh, it's, you know, it's, it, it, yeah, it almost plays like softcore parody in a way, in, in spots. Um, and the scene is, even though you really don't see anything in the, in the tracheotomy scene, it's just incredibly gruesome, just a really bleak, bleak scene, it's, it's so nasty. Um, of course, what's clever about it is that it's really all done with the sound effects. That's the worst part of it. I mean, all you see is this, you see this diffuse shot of what is probably an open throat here. And, but there's really not much shown here. It's the sound. So even the audience members who are uh, cowardly enough to turn away, they're still getting the worst of it just through what they're hearing. It's really horrific. Well, I should mention also that the song on the soundtrack here is actually called No Escape. Uh, it's another one of the metal songs. It's by a group called Nord and Light. Uh, they were a Swedish, Swedish uh, metal group, and uh, they only had a very short run, actually. Uh, they disbanded three years uh, after this in 1990, and they only released two demo albums, which are actually pretty rare, so if you ever see them uh, and you're uh, an 80s metal fan, you might want to snap those up. And of course, uh, this also marked the end of sort of the metal phase of Argento's career, because again, it, uh, Demons was sort of the um, the peak of that. I mean, it's, it's almost wall to wall, just you know, standard metal, hair metal, you know, and whatnot, with a little bit of pop sprinkled into it. But Demons is, um, yeah, I think, the, <laughs> the most astonishing use of metal in, in Italian horror. And of course, in the phenomena, he'd use some uh, some Motorhead and Iron Maiden, of course, to punctuate it. I, you know, it, it it is very energetic and it's a lot of fun. I think it actually works fine in the murder sequences in this film. Uh, I, I think the songs are actually a lot of fun. You know, by the way, if you saw this in Italian theaters, this is the intermission break point here. It's uh, standard that halfway into the film, or roughly, you would uh, you have a little uh, f you have a little uh, break for the audience. It's the end of Act One. So if you saw it, this uh, that originally faded to black after the rope breaks, and it said end of Act One, and so which was actually a nice touch. So then Act Two would commence with the shot of the uh, the streaming water here. Um, unfortunately, that's. Uh, 
you know, that's an aspect that gets completely lost on home video, unfortunately, and uh, which also results in some confusion. If you look at New York Ripper, for example, that's a film that was really uh, has caused confusion for years because of the intermission break. Um, originally, there was a scene with Paolo Malco walking out onto the street. It was originally supposed to sort of go uh, into a sort of like a solarized fade out uh, at the intermission break, and no one could ever figure out where that scene was supposed to go when it went international, and so it's popped around in different places over the years. Some people think it's supposed to go at the end, and then they think maybe the doctor is really the killer. It's, it's very confusing, but um, that was the intermission break, so that was what that was all about. But again, once the movie travels outside of Italy, that whole, that whole point is lost. But back to the metal music, uh, it's, um, again, I think, I think for the murder scenes, it actually, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I don't mind it, uh, but I know a lot of viewers have a problem with it. I think it's more troubling um, during the scenes where Betty's walking down the street or where she's running through the hills later on. That's where it gets a little bizarre. I think he's trying to... Uh, pick up on the idea from Phenomena where, where Jennifer Connelly's, you know, running away from the cops, you know, and Motorhead starts blasting on the soundtrack, which I think worked better there because it had kind of a, uh, it had sort of a delirious kind of dreamlike quality to it, whereas here it's it's a little more confusing. Uh, not a deal breaker or anything like that, but um, I think that's where it's used the most clumsily and I think where people tend to trip up with the film a little bit. Now, I should probably talk, go into the, the role of Betty, I think, in Argento's filmography because she's actually an interesting character. If you look at his heroines, uh, they start off as um, these sort of very traditional, strong, uh, sort of quote-unquote normal women. If you look at movies like Deep Red and especially with Suspiria, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're very likable, very upbeat, very sort of well-put-together characters. You know, they, they're very psychologically sound. And uh, so then when you get to Phenomena, she, that's, which is still, um, you know, one of, one of the youngest of Argento's protagonists. Obviously, Trauma is another one. Ozzy was very young in that as well. Um, but in Phenomena, you have Jennifer Connelly, who is treated as someone who is um, a freak or someone who's very broken. But of course, we know that she's just different. She's sort of, in a way, she's more advanced. And uh, the movie's definitely on her side. And there's really nothing wrong with her at all. She's very capable and that she... Uh, you know, she overcomes all these obstacles and uses these forces within her to... Uh, uh, you have to conquer the forces of darkness, as it were, and so she ends the film on this note of uh, almost this sort of serene grace. Uh, but that gets distorted a bit in this film because then you get to Betty, who is really a mess. Uh, she's completely traumatized from her childhood. She's uh, sexually dysfunctional. She can barely even express herself. She has no idea what to do. When she's put into this situation, she can't even go to the cops and, and offer a coherent explanation of what's what's been happening. So, uh, in a way, she's uh, this is where her, his his heroines start to get really really broken. I think. Uh, so by the time you get to the end of the film, it's ambiguous as to whether she has just completely lost her mind. Uh, you know, has she just gone off the deep end because of this, or has she managed to overcome it and again gone into this sort of state of like murdered grace you know at the end when she's rolling in the grass you know it's really up to you to decide um argento himself has described the ending as being very sad uh which it certainly is but uh you can really read it uh whichever way you choose but of course after this film his next feature of length film is trauma uh which is where you have uh an equally messed up uh, heroine which is uh the character of ara who was you know, an anorexic who uh uh, who's a foreigner, who's very, uh, you know, out of place uh, in Minnesota, and she's, um, in her own ways, just as messed up as Betty, although uh, she, uh, you know, she actually comes, winds up in a better place because he introduces the love story aspect, which is completely thwarted here. It's like Mark and Betty just obviously uh, never really stood a chance, whereas uh, in Trauma, I think it's a much more positive outcome at the end, uh, even after she and the uh, Chris Rydell character essentially have to go through this trial by fire to get there. Uh, 
and uh, of course then Asia is uh, you know uh, she represents sort of the, the progression of the Argento woman uh, you know beyond uh, beyond the film as well Stendhal syndrome uh, I think carries on some ideas from opera as well especially the ending um, you'll notice that opera is actually the very first uh, I believe Argento film where he doesn't kill the the murderer and so, um, but the heroine ends up in sort of this comforted place, whether she's crazy or not, and the killer sort of is sorted off. And Stendhal Syndrome, uh, in a way, kind of picks up on that idea in, in a very unusual way. If you haven't seen the film, I'll try not to spoil it too much, but um, in a way, he, he dispatches the killer, and in a way, he doesn't. Uh, and he sort of offers this, um, the, his heroine actually sort of has this regression to sort of this childlike state at the end of the film. Uh, which is very interesting. Um, and same thing with Hand of the Opera, uh, which, again, is another film that actually plays better in Italian. Uh, I think the English version is uh, very hard to get through, but if you watch it, the Italian version with English subtitles, it's a much more respectable <laughs> experience. Uh, but at the end of that film as well, um, he, uh, again, he can't give his heroine a happy film. She's actually distraught um, at being pulled away from... Uh, with Phantom at the end of the film, you know, she's being guided off into the light, which is an interesting idea. But I think if you watch it back to back with opera, it's, uh, it's an interesting sort of compare and contrast situation where you see how he treats uh, the, the, the poor opera understudies uh, in both films. And again, I, I think the whole uh, the idea of Betty constantly having to meditate, that she goes into these sort of hypnotic states to try to calm herself down, to put her mind at ease. Is, is a very interesting idea that she has to, um, she's always trying to sort of escape, to lull herself, to, to, you know, she doesn't want to sort of deal with these nightmares that keep hitting her. And of course here we have the, uh, the little switcheroo situation involving the two different Daniele Sawalis, which um, doesn't, again, this is another part of the film that on a, on a logical level it doesn't really add up the way that the real inspector is behaving. Uh, you know, it doesn't quite make sense as to why he doesn't do anything. He's just sitting in the other room, doesn't respond to anything going on. Um, but again, it's, it's more about sort of the sensory experience of it. It's, it's almost just sort of like she's stuck in a nightmare and that no one can help her even if they're in the apartment. Um, so, but yeah, if you, if you try to pull the scene apart on any kind of logical level, it, it doesn't, you know, nothing adds up. It's just sort of like you're stuck in a maze. I do. I think Daria, uh, she's uh, she doesn't tend to speak very highly of her role or the film uh, somewhat. I mean, I, I know she definitely doesn't like the ending, but she tends to denigrate her role in here somewhat. But I, I think uh, she's better than she gives herself credit for, um, especially in the sequence. I think I think she's actually very commanding, very powerful. I think it's a really interesting role for her. Um, and, and of course, this uh, uh, you know she. Um, she she always has this sort of uh, this inner strength, this kind of mystical quality to her, which I think comes out of her her fascination with with magic that she brought to uh, mm -hmm. to which carried on Inferno. And of course, um, she uh, and Argento parted ways for quite a long time after this, uh, but she did come back for a role in uh, Mother of Tears many many years later. Um, which is probably the strangest role she's ever played. She's basically um, almost like a, a fairy. She's like the ghost of Ozzy Argento, uh, her mother, uh, who's a, a white witch. Um, it's a very, very strange part. Uh, but that film is a good representative also of uh, Argento's later career, of how much he had, he had changed. I mean, again, if you look at Mother of Tears versus, you know, the guy who made Suspiria and Inferno in this, it's, it's such a sharp divide. I mean, it's, it's kind of shocking. Well, you know, there are cases that have been made back and forth about the merits of, you know, of Mother of Tears and of... Uh, um, 
you know, Dracula and, and all of those films, but there's, there's no question that it's significantly different, um, obviously. So it'll be interesting, you know, say 10 or 20 years from now, when people look back and sort of evaluate um, the progression of where Gento went as a director. You know, some people say that he um, had a complete downfall, whereas others just, you know, kick back and have a good time. I, I think it's more due to the fact that, it, you know, he, he's really the one long-standing holdout in uh, the Italian film industry who really stuck with the horror film and who's kept it alive, and that's that's a pretty heavy burden to bear. And I think when the money and the resources and the support aren't there, that uh, you know that's when things get a little bit strange and twisted, uh, you know, which is definitely the case with his later films, and it makes them more difficult. But I don't think they're without value. I think even the, even the worst of them, which I would probably say is Jallo, uh, with Adrian Brody, which was you know basically taken out of his hands, but even that has has its points of interest. Um, and uh, also, I think it's interesting. This this is a return to Inferno, where he's using opera music suspensefully, which is something that you don't see too often. Um, you know, you've had action scenes, obviously, in opera houses, like Mission Impossible, um, Rogue Nation, for example, is, uh, did an interesting job with it, and Quantum of Solace did a really not interesting job of it. But it's more difficult, I think, to build a, a horror and suspense scene with opera music, and I think he does a really brilliant job here, especially with the the way the lights flashing. It's this sort of uh, Again, he's sort of interesting. It's, it's like Mario Bava lighting here. It's just absolutely crazy. It's a blood and black lace uh, type situation here. And of course, now we're about to get to uh, Mira's demise, which I think is one of the great show-stopping moments in the Argento canon. If you ever uh, see this film with an audience, if you ever get to see, especially if you see a print projected on a nice big screen, uh, this is a scene that always. Uh, provokes applause. You, you will hear audiences just spontaneously burst into just clapping and, and they're just so astonished. It's, it's such a, a perverse sequence. It, it's really wonderfully executed. And of course, John Woo later uh, uh, essentially copied it in Hard Target uh, to far lesser effect, unfortunately, but it's almost the exact same special effect and situation with the uh, bullet through the keyhole. But it's a really wonderful scene. And if you... Uh, if you hear interviews with uh, Daria about the sequence, of course, she was terrified uh, when she, the morning she was doing this because she wasn't quite sure where Argento uh, uh, was going with the scene, that he was going to try to pull something. Because, you know, she wasn't some physical danger with the, the chimp and razor bitten phenomenon. So, you know, she, she had like this conical of blood and she had like a little, little fragment of dynamite strapped to her head that had to go off. And so, you know, and here we go. <laughs> just an absolutely incredible scene. Uh, just, just wonderful. Um, I think the bullet hitting the, t the telephone is a really great touch, too, that it doesn't just stop there. It's, it's, I think that's why this film is so fun, because it actually has little unexpected flourishes. You've got the phone getting hit and flying off the floor. It's like William McNamara's death scene. It's not just him being stabbed. You have just that, that the horrible, grisly touch of him getting stabbed through the hands. You know, I mean, the, the defensive actions, I think, is what just makes that scene just so grueling. Um, you know, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, just such a great scene. And so, of course, this is, you know, Argento firing on full thrusters as a thriller maker. But, um, you know, by this point, it's it's interesting that sort of the giallo as we knew it had, had really ceased to exist for the most part. There were still a few attempts where they sort of crossed it with sort of the, the cable soft core aesthetic. It feels like nothing underneath coming out. But, uh, you know, this this is not your typical giallo, I think. But it's it falls under the category just barely. All the phenomena is even more of a fringe case. And then it's sort of half and half uh, because it also has you know, monster elements and the psychic elements and that sort of thing going on. But uh, it's it's interesting seeing how he sort of does this push and pull between what you'd consider the normal giallo and, and a horror film. And of course, also in the 80s, he was also taking 
uh, you know, he's sort of making nods towards the slasher film, which of course was hugely popular. It was kind of starting to wane by waning out by this point, but um, of course the Jalo was a very strong influence on the slasher film. Uh, you know, especially in the 70s. I mean, movies like Blood and Black Lace, Bay of Blood, of course, are all the forerunners uh, to the modern slasher film. And then in return, Italy, of course, starts, you know, it's like a call and response thing. Italy starts talking back to it. Obviously, our uh, Tenebrae is probably the ultimate example where Argento is taking all the tropes of the slasher film and he's making them into a giallo, uh, you know, that works both ways. Obviously, Nurk Ripper is another one, uh, which is still classified as a giallo, but it's also just a flat-out slasher film. And of course, Phenomena does too. In an opera, it's very interesting because if there is such a thing as an art slasher film, this would be it. Uh, you know, it does have enough of a mystery element where it counts as a giallo, but it also has that uh, that really sort of vicious, irrational kind of quality that slasher films have, where you know it's. Uh, you know, these, the, the POV shots, like the one you have here where the killer is stalking through the apartment. Uh, you know, the murders are, are all done without seeing the killer's face, but a lot of it's done POV style and it, it's sort of like fragmented close-ups and it's very disorienting. Uh, and again, just the viciousness of the knifings, you know, it's it's definitely not, you know, it's a pretty long way from, say, like what Sergio Martino was doing or Roberto Lindsay was doing uh, in the genre. And again, this is like another really beautifully, beautifully lit scene. Again, interesting that he would not use uh, that he only use opera music again here in the way that it sort of builds the suspense up, and that you, uh, you know you have the killer sort of dashing around just out of sight, uh, and and the opera music actually accentuates it. And if you want to see how he would have done this with some of that music, you can look at the card player, uh, which is later filmed. But there's a very similar sequence uh, where uh, the heroine is actually in her apartment at night, and the killer is is inside. Uh, but you have Simonetti just you know blaring full blast. Um, it's actually the best scene in the film. Uh, if you see, it. that's that's another one that a lot of people bash, but it has maybe a good you know four or five scenes in it that I think are you know up there with uh, his better later work. Uh, but yeah, he's, it's something he's gone back to a few times, and it's interesting how he goes he refines it uh, each time that he does it. And of course, there's Michele. The poor guy tends to die in most of his movies. It's a shame. Uh, you may recall he's actually in, uh, if you want to see him at his youngest, take a look at Lucio Fulci's City of the Living Dead. He's uh, the guy who's sitting in the car uh, when Daniela Dori is, um, is uh, barfing her guts out, and then he gets uh, his brains pull out through the back of his head. That's very young Michele Suave. Uh, and then, of course, he later went on a major spoiler alert here for Blade in the Dark, if you haven't seen it, but he also uh, had a memorable role there. He's the killer who's running around in drag, knifing everybody up and... Uh, is a uh, very interesting final scene in that one as well. Uh, but he actually, McKelly actually started off as an actor before he was a director, or assistant director actually is where he started and then became a director. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, you know, that obviously wasn't his thing. Uh, you know, he gave up on it eventually. Um, but, you know, he tended to still do cameos in his films. You know, he pops up in, uh, in uh, the church and uh, on stage right. He has a fun bit as a cop. He thinks he looks like James Dean. So... Again, the whole idea of the uh, the opera music making the killer crazy, I think, is a fun one. It kind of reminds me of Blue Sunshine, actually, where the, the uh, they crank up the disco music and uh, in the climax makes the killer go crazy and start running around having fits. This feels like a little Blue Sunshine moment here. And again, got Ronnie Taylor just absolutely going nuts with the steady cam here and all the, uh, the Dutch angles. It's a lot of fun. 
It's a shame. I mean, you just this is um, again, like I said, it's like, you see a little bit of trauma. But this is really the last film that looks like this with this kind of just this constant sense of just visual aggression. Like every scene just has this inventive quality of just trying to give you something you've never seen before. Um, yeah, after um, this is you know this was the first one where it start to finish, and then you see a little bit of trauma, and then it, it pretty much just fades away by the time you get to Stendhal syndrome. It's it's a whole different aesthetic. You know, it's much more traditional, much more static. Um, Again, a very interesting way to do it, but it's, again, it's just not the same uh, as what we had before. And I also think it's, this is another one of the, uh, you know, the little girl, little child characters in Argento's films. He likes having kids in there who are sort of the uh, deus ex machinas of his films. Again, Trauma did it, did it with the blonde kid who comes in at the end, with the, the, you know, the butterfly chaser who does it with the... Uh, little electric uh, guillotine at the end. Uh, you know, obviously Cat of Nine Tails, uh, I think is probably my favorite example. I just, I, I love, uh, love little uh, Chinzy de Corollis in that film. She's really great. Um, you know, and uh, of course in Deep Ride, I had Nicola Delmi as the, the creepy girl sticking the pins in the lizards. So um, the little neighbor girl, I think is a continuation of that. You know, she's another representation of the, uh, sort of ethereal girl who pops up out of nowhere, you know, as, as uh, you know, either dispensing information or saving the character, you know, that tends to be something that turns up over and over again in his films. Uh, of course, the one exception, of course, would be in Suspira, you have the evil little uh, Albert, he's sort of like the, uh, the witch uh, opposite of these, these little kid characters, he's the evil one, of course. I think it's a nice way. It, she also resembles the, you know, she's, she's, uh, looks just like the young Betty uh, in the flashbacks, you know, which is a nice touch. And you have Betty sort of uh, being saved by her younger self. You know, and then she has, has this sort of sweet uh, tenderness towards the girl, despite the fact that she lives with an abusive uh, prostitute mother, it's implied, uh, who's really awful. That's another scene that was actually cut out from the, uh, the Orion print, uh, is the, uh, Everything after this, uh, the scene after the killer walks by when they go back to the apartment, all that was cut out, uh, which it doesn't affect the story in any way at all, but it does um, sort of soften the, the ongoing message about kids having to deal with, um, you know, abusive or very harrowing situations that'll probably leave their scars, you know, for the rest of their lives, which is definitely, you know, true in Betty's case, of course. And, as for this little girl, who knows? Uh, if you look, uh, she, she and her mother are actually in the opera house during the, uh, the climax. Um, why on earth Betty would actually want the mother in, to come to that performance, God only knows. But um, it, is, it is funny how you can see the girl in there. But of course, she uh, has one last trauma in store for her during the climax of the film. She has to sit there and witness that too. And, you know, so you could actually make a sequel, just whatever happened to her because of all that. I love the crazy photograph on the left side there. I don't know what the story is there or who that is, but hopefully somebody can shed some light. But <laughs> it's one of those odd little touches. But it's also interesting, you know, for a director who gets so much flack for, you know, because of his comment about how he'd rather see a, a beautiful woman being killed than a man or being, a, you know, a pretty woman being chased or in, in peril. Uh, you know, but I think uh, Argento actually has a very interesting outlook on women. I think he, he does a good job of portraying women, the sort of different uh, gradations of, of womanhood, you might say, in his films. 
Uh, it's very interesting. Suspiria obviously is a fascinating one because it's almost entirely female-driven. The men are, the very few men are just negligible entirely in that in that one, uh, which I love. Uh, and again, Inferno also has has a lot of female characters in the way so they're sort of they pass on to one another and how the the man is. Even though Mark becomes the, the ostensible hero, he realizes he doesn't do anything. He, he has no real function except to just sort of wander through and then stumble out, you know, alive at the end of the movie. But he doesn't really do much. Now here's another uh, song by Steel Grave. This is actually a song uh, that is called Steel Grave. That's not confusing enough. Uh, that's another little dose of heavy metal. I think this is the, the oddest, probably heavy metal bit in the film, uh, maybe in the Switzerland scene, but uh, very, very peculiar. Um, but in, in its own way, it's, it sort of comes out of nowhere, so it's another thing in the film that catches you off guard, I guess. So it, you know, either like it or you don't, I guess. And you'll actually notice uh, coming up in, in just a moment when Betty goes into the theater, that's another one of uh, one of the scenes of, uh, of characters passing through these uh, red curtains. That's, that's sort of a recurring motif in Argento's films. Four Flies, obviously, which also had a scene inside an opera house um, at the beginning, but has that. And then in Deep Red also, um, at the beginning of the parapsychology conference, you have the camera sort of swooping through these red curtains, and you've got it again here. Uh, Inferno, actually, also at the library, they, they, they do that. Uh, and, of course, in Suspiria, you have... Uh, um, Jessica Harper uh, going through the translucent curtains when she goes into the witch's lair. So whenever you see a character passing through curtains in one of Argento's films, uh, like you will in just a moment, uh, it's sort of like they're they're going into another, uh, you know, the story's about to go into a different dimension. Again, they've got the red symbolism with the lighting here, uh, you know, which is anticipating it. So you've got red, red. Uh, so she's, uh, in which they're passing through a membrane of sorts. She's gone into this this other level of the film, which she, you know, now that she and Mark are figure out a way to going to figure out a way to fight back and how to unmask the killer, but it's going to unleash, you know, um, a whole lot of snakes that she probably doesn't want to deal with uh, from her past. And again, I, th I think the scene uh, where she's walking through the theater, it's uh, with all, you know, and all these, these foot level shots, it's uh, something that Ronnie Taylor and Argento would later pursue in Sleepless. There's that, uh, the great scene, the, the carpet uh, theater scene with the ballerina in Sleepless also is an echo of this as well. And also, uh, depending on the version you watch, you may or may not hear another Simonetti piece uh, in here called Confusion, uh, which is one of the more lovely uh, sort of mellow pieces that he wrote uh, for Argento. But uh, in the Italian version, it's the mix the loudest, uh, whereas in most English versions, it's either barely there or not at all. Uh, but it plays throughout the scene. And then when uh, Charleston does his, uh, his uh, Shakespeare soliloquy here, um, what he does very well. Uh, you can tell he actually re really wanted to do this. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this was something that he injected himself into the film. But it's also interesting in that you have Charleston is, is really the, uh, that the sort of the, the horror movie director turned opera director is actually the, the amateur detective in the story. You, know, you would think that it would be Betty, but she really doesn't do any sleuthing. She's sort of this... Um, for most of the film, she's kind of passive uh, in that she's sort of just dealing with the trauma and trying to get away from it, whereas Mark is the one who actually comes up with the plan to unmask the killer, um, although ultimately it will uh, be his undoing later down the road. But, um, you know, but if you have to pick the detective in this film, it's actually him, which is kind of interesting. And again, you have Betty sort of escaping into this, this sort of this... Sort of, uh, this rose-colored room, this uh, sort of fuchsia-colored uh, 
little chamber here back to her childhood where you have this little childish mobile with the birds uh, sort of echoing the ravens that are going to be flying later on. So again, you have all this bird symbolism. No connection to Hitchcock, apparently, although it's tempting to read it there. But, um, and no bird the crystal plumage connection either. We've got the beetles again, more animal imagery there, the insects. By going to the past, it's sort of this old villa, you know, which is interesting. It kind of looks like Lisa and the Devil, where again, you have this sort of, um, sort of this dark, sort of cobwebby chamber of the mind that she's going into. Uh, you know, that I, it's probably her perception of what, what she saw as a child, um, not necessarily the way that it really happened. It's, yeah, it's very, very eerie the way this is shot. But yeah, a very strong Baba kind of vibe to this. I mean, it looks like something out of, again, Lisa and the Devil or Baron Blood, Kill Baby Kill. It has that kind of feeling to it that you have, the, you know, harkening back to the past, not just of Betty, but of Italian horror films in general, you know, having these sort of these flashes of, of history. And of course, then you have the, uh, multiple generations of womanhood here. You have like the little Betty and then you have Betty's mother is the, the cruel sadist. And then of course you have the victim here, the mass killer. It's, it's very primal sort of horror scene here. And again, once you've got the red couch as well, Yeah. I mean, if you know Argento, you know that like, the color is never an accident, especially when he uses colors like red and blue, but it's always sort of a signal to you that you should be responding in a certain way or that he's drawing these threads through. Um, you know, in this case, again, the red is, uh, again, it's, it's uh, definitely the present. It's where, the, you know, the story, something very strong is about to happen in the story, that evil is present or that the, you know, there are major changes about to take place, the color blood of transformation of death, you know. And again, there's a uh, little girl and her mom there. Yeah, this is such a, a really fantastic staging. I love this. It really doesn't, it's hard to see how this really fits in with the story of Macbeth. It's just <laughs> the way the way that this is done. It's just very, very avant-garde. It's, it's just crazy. Um, again, if you look at the way that Argento really did stage it himself later on, it's much more the way you would expect it to be done. Oh, it's a shame he didn't try. I would, I would actually love to see Macbeth done on stage this way. I think it'd be really something to witness of course this film was a you know a huge challenge to shoot technically and this scene in particular uh, if you look at the making of uh, there are several there's a Argento's World of Horror Part 2 uh, by Luigi Cozzi and, and uh, which was later adapted into a feature from underground or if you look at the extras on this disc um, You know again a lot of the camera innovations were really something else on this film the scene in particular because they actually had to um, Take out the chandelier inside the real opera house and they used that to build that you know um, the uh, The way that they can mechanically have the camera sort of rotate in these circles, you know to mimic a raven But uh, again, Sergio Stovaletti really had his work cut out for him on this on this film because he had to build these ravens. That yeah, it's a combination. You have real ravens, obviously, and you have mechanical ravens, uh, and then you have these you know, little hand puppet ones that you can see, like when they're pecking uh, the eyes out, for example. You have the puppets, but then you have the mechanical feet. There's the uh, the great overhead shot where the claws are coming down, but then you have the mechanical rings fluttering. So it's this uh, really complex um, combination of all these different elements to sort of give the idea of these ravens sort of swirling around and around and around and zooming in on their target.
And of course, you also have to mention that uh, Rosario Prestepino, who did the uh, was the makeup artist on the film, uh, did an exceptional job as well. Uh, uh, Prestepino was uh, behind the uh, the bullet through the head effect earlier in the film, and did the uh, the eyeball ripping that you see later on, which uh, which Barberini has for the remainder of the film. Definitely the more most uh, outrageous, I think, killer reveal <laughs> Argento ever had. Uh, you really can't top this one. Just between the sheer pandemonium, just the idea of just throwing this cage full of ravens out into an audience. I mean, it's just it's it's crazy. I can't think of another director who would attempt something like this. And it's much better than I think dropping a chandelier. Uh, if you look at his Phantom of the Opera, for example, it's it's so much more small scale than this. So I think that's why people were disappointed with it, and that it's you know it doesn't have the sheer guts and just, you know, insanity that this film has. But yeah, it's, it's a continuation of the whole phenomena idea, because in that film you had uh, uh, Jennifer Connelly was able to actually sort of summon you know, these hordes of insects and that they could descend on the, uh, on the murderous, uh, monstrous little boy who was responsible for these deaths and that, you know, they're almost like a, 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 an externalization of, of her personality. And here it's... Uh, you know, it's the, the the ravens aren't being controlled. It's just it's in their nature. They're naturally vengeful animals, which uh, I think ties into the whole Macbeth thing as well. And it's a story of just you know, just blood and uh, you know the cycle of vengeance where everyone just you know just dies and dies and dies. That Macbeth and, and his wife just set off this chain, and the blood just can't be scrubbed off. And so that's something that's a nice mirror to this story as well. And that you know you've had the cycle of, of you know of, of blood and uh, bloodlust that's you know continued on and on through these characters but the ravens are just the most primal example of that where you know they're going to find the person who killed their friends no matter what um, which obviously you know there's no way this would work in real life but as a cinematic device it's just you know it's pretty unforgettable and again it's more metal music I, I I'm convinced that uh the Simonetti track uh, Crows or Craws, again, depending on which soundtrack you have, that that was uh, supposed to accompany the scene. Uh, you should try syncing it up sometime if you want to have fun, pull the soundtrack out and play that track over the scene. Uh, I think it actually works better. I, I kind of wish they had kept it uh, in there. It would have been more fun because I think the metal music, it's fine. It definitely has an energy to it that works. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think had they put the Simonetti piece in there, would have, uh, I think audiences today might enjoy it a little more. But still, great, great, great scene here. <laughs> it's also interesting you'll note that instead of uh, sometimes Argento's outfits could be these sort of these colorful wild creations but you'll notice by this point in the film everyone is either wearing white or black or gray which is a nice touch I mean first of all it offsets the blood it makes it pop more but it also shows you just how sort of um, just how really messed up these people are their personalities have just been so just drained out that there's they, you know they, they can't live these full lives anymore so it's, just, it's kind of a neat touch I bet he's just wearing black and here's the eyeball swallowing which again was uh, first of all just sick and such a disgusting touch you can't believe that he kept the camera going this long uh, but again and for Italian audiences that was cut out of many prints but the whole black and white idea is interesting on Betty of course you've got it combined so she's this sort of split uh split character and that she has this darkness inside her from her past you know but she also has the sense of uh you know innocence or purity that she's trying to hang on to in the film but uh, and of course alan is just you know in gray you know so he's stuck in the middle and that he's 
trying to figure out his mindset is also interesting because at the end of the film, when he says, I just wanted to free their souls, there's nothing in the film that backs that up. Uh, so you don't know if it's sort of his excuse to the police to say maybe if there's a trial, he's gonna, that's going to be his defense. But um, there's no soul-saving at work here. It's, it's purely selfish for him. No, but he knows full well what he's doing to these people. And here back to the New Age music again. Just some really, really just wonderfully grisly makeup effect here. It's very, very effective. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, this, despite the problem with the ages of the characters here, just, I, I think he's actually really good in this scene. I, I think the whole idea of that he's, you know, that he has a sort of deep abiding love that actually transcends one person that he's trying desperately to recapture it. I think it's an interesting idea, you know. And again, it's something that he also um, explored a bit in Sleepless. Uh, you have also have that the character. You have like this best friend character. I hope, you, hope you've seen the film by now. Uh, but you have uh, also someone who's sort of trying to recapture the, the past that they you know, these horrible things they did. In that case, it really was a child, but they're trying to sort of relive it and. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to, uh, you know, get that thrill, but just as an adult, and it just, you know, it's all for naught, that they just can't quite do it. Um, you know, so in a way, it's very sad that he's, uh, you know, that he's sort of stuck in this loop, and he just can't get out of it. Now, of course, this, uh, all the crew members on this film talked about shooting the scene, and that it, there was almost some delight in the fact that, uh, Christina went through a, a lot of hell between being tied up and having to work so close to the flames, and you know she's uh, apparently had a pretty unpleasant time with the scene. And uh, I guess a lot of people felt that it was just desserts. Again, she, I don't, don't believe she's ever really talked about making this film since it was done. I've never seen an interview where she addressed it at all. So you know, haven't really heard her side of the story. But uh, it would be interesting someday if someone could sit her down and uh, get her take on it. But she's uh, really in no hurry to talk about it, unfortunately. But. But again, it's, uh, you know, if you look at this film in relation to the thrillers that came before it, I mean, he always has these characters in their, in their own way, everything makes sense to them. There's always a level of sympathy, especially when you look at um, Bird the Crystal Plumage, you have sort of the victim and killer all in one, in one person, so there's a certain amount of sympathy. Um, and uh, well, actually, she didn't die either. So yeah, it's actually, this is the first male uh, killer who didn't die. Uh, there's a female killer, killer who uh, didn't die, but all of his male killers uh, tend to be dispatched in horrible ways. Um, yeah, for women, women, he tends to go a lot easier. Um, and so with uh, Stendhal, he, uh, you know, with, later on with his films, he actually uh, tends to be even more benevolent, you might say. Uh, or even in trauma, um, you know, you, you're actually rooting for the, the killer in that one at the end once you find out why she's doing it. Um, even though she dies, you actually, in a way, you sort of feel bad because it actually makes perfect sense why she did what she did. But, uh, so in this film, it's like you're not... Uh, you know, there's a certain de degree of sympathy for him in a way in the fact that he's, you know, he's clearly been warped by this for years and years and years and pushed into the situation by her mother. So, you know, exactly where the blame is assigned, you don't know because you don't know the entire story. But um, he's not just a one-dimensional monster at all. Uh, which, again, is also the case with things like Tenebrae or even Phenomena. It's, you know, it's, you know, these are people who have been warped by, you know, just in enduring these, uh, you know, these stresses and these these you know, horrible circumstances for years and years, and how it creates monsters. How people aren't born that way; that they're just um, they just grow up more and more crooked, and uh, you know, until there's just no turning back, which is the case for him also in this film. 
again, the, the POV for Betty, and that at first she was, uh, the irony, of course, is that she was being forced to watch everything with the needles, and of course here now he doesn't want her to see anything now that he's, uh, now that he's no longer what he feels attra is attractive, that he's, uh, you know, he doesn't want her to see him at all. Now she's completely blindfolded, so it's, you have this reverse situation here. And of course, this is really where the, the whole logic aspect falls apart in that he clearly couldn't have known about the ravens or attacking him, and yet he has this escape plan set up, um, which, you know, again, if you try to think about it for a second, it just doesn't work. You know, trying to pass off a mannequin that somehow you have time to switch your coat out or something because it has the key in it. And just the logistics of it just, yeah, it can drive you crazy if you try to pull this apart. It doesn't really work. But um, again, it's a film where it's just, it's, it's pure dream logic. It's just a pure nightmare. And of course, then you also have the, uh, the earlier you had the image of the women being bound, you had the ropes and, uh, uh, you know, the knives and everything. So here you have Betty uh, essentially on the receiving end of that and how she, you know, she has to learn how to, how to fight back. Actually twice in this case, not just once. And then of course you have the, the fire element, which is something that's always been very prevalent in Argento films as well. well. There's a lot of water and fire imagery, but... Um, of course, the uh, ultimate examples would be uh, at the end of Suspiria and the end of Inferno. They both end with these huge uh, conflagrations. And you would expect that this would be the end of the film. Obviously, Orion did, that it would end with this huge, uh, you know, fiery climax. And, uh, you know, that's normally what most directors would do, but not in this case. Uh, it, you know, in this case, that's actually far from the end of the story. So, yeah, but try to figure out how exactly did Alan get out of the room? How did he get the coat with the the key inside the pocket onto this mannequin and wh where is he exactly what's what's the story here try you know if you can figure it all out <laughs> let me know <laughs> we'll say whether the danger was real or not i think christine is actually very good in, in this scene i mean you, she's uh very convincingly terrified one way or the other You notice this actually even sound. It sounds like the same uh, fire sound effects from Inferno. If you go back and watch the climax of that film, uh, it clearly echoes it um, quite obviously. And then of course, Mother of Tears also. You know, it actually takes place in a cave. I mean, how primal can you get? And again, you have sort of the fire and the mud and the water. That's where it all comes together again, um, albeit not quite as impressively. Uh, but it is something that turns up over and over and over again. And also interesting that, it, uh, you know, with opera, I think it's the most violent shift where you go from this urban setting, and then in just a minute, we're going to switch over to the countryside, uh, which is something that he does as well. Again, Stendhal does it. Uh, you know, a lot of films do that. Um, you know, Phenomena, of course, is, you know, the ultimate one. But we'll get more to that in just a second. Then we think that uh, you know Mark is, of course, the White Knight here. That he's going to be saving her, and that uh, everything's going to be wrapping down. Now, of course, several times Argento has explained that um, the end of this film was actually inspired by the book Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, uh, which has a uh, an unexpected ending where the, you think the killer's dead and everything's wrapped up, and then he winds up uh, coming after Will Graham's family at the end, which of course was not in Michael Mann's film Manhunter, but it was included in the uh, 
the Red Dragon film uh, by Brett Ratner uh, much later, obviously. So this was Argento's attempt at bringing that back. But more importantly, it's also, uh, I, I love the way that this sequence, it, uh, it features wraparounds showing Argento's past and his future in a way because you have Ian Charlson doing the little trick with the fly, which is carried over from what Argento did on Phenomena. In fact, if you watch Argento's World of Horror, they show them doing the same fly trick in that. So uh, between you have the Logano's where the scene was shot, so you have the Swiss setting, uh, you, know, you even have the outfit here that's similar to what Jennifer Connelly was wearing. Now suddenly Betty's wearing this sort of pastel blue and the white shirt, so clearly uh, something's changed inside her. She's, not, she's actually wearing color now. And uh, you know, so you're starting off in phenomena territory, which is interesting. Uh, but you're, you know, but he's also sort of pulling on the uh, ending from Red Dragon, uh, you know, his little tip of the hat. But what's interesting is that in the original script, uh, the ending was a bit different. It did not have Betty turning on uh, Alan and whacking with the rock. Instead, uh, he um, he knifes Mark to death, and then uh, Betty realizes that she is in love with Alan. Uh, she has been turned into her mother, and they walk off uh, happily in the sunset. And what's interesting is that that is actually a foreshadowing of how Thomas Harris would end Hannibal, uh, the book, not the movie. Uh, if you read the book, it, it's a very similar note where Hannibal actually does manage to brainwash Clarice into this... Uh, it has sort of Phantom of the Opera vibe to it that he, he puts her into the state of uh, infatuation and she becomes, uh, you know, his his, uh, his dream woman, literally. Um, you know, and with the uh, the implication that if she ever snaps out of it, of course, that she will be killed. And so you don't know that it just constantly has this ambiguous note to it. Uh, so, yeah, interesting that Argento actually beat Thomas Harris to the punch in a way with the ending that he did not shoot. So... Um, I think in some ways that would have been a more interesting ending and it would have been more thematically appropriate to the film. Uh, but what we have is definitely unexpected and it is just an, it's an outrageous way to end the film. It's, it's absolutely crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, if you ever see this again in the theater, it's like, it's, it's funny trying to see your people trying to gauge exactly where it's heading because you're not in safe territory anymore. You have no idea what's going to be happening from here. And you can have the Swiss news broadcast, which is straight out of phenomena. Another poor victim, only got one line of dialogue. And of course, we have to have one last little burst of heavy metal here as uh, Betty goes running for her life. Which again, was a shot very much like Jennifer Connelly. And it would have been interesting had Jennifer Connelly been cast in this film. I think if you try to visualize it, I, I think Betty would have certainly been a much warmer character. He, uh, you know, I think people would probably warm to the film a little better in that. I, What's also interesting is that this film, uh, it was generally well-liked when it came out. You know, a lot of horror fans were really over the moon, and it still has a very good reputation, but especially younger viewers, if you listen to, like, a lot of horror podcasts or go to a lot of blogs, and you'll notice the opinion is very split on this film. A lot of people don't know what to make of it, or they don't like it because it's not as, uh, it's not as accessible as something like Deep Red or Tenebrae. It's a much more difficult film. It's more... It's, uh, it's much sadder. It's more abrasive. It's, it doesn't really play by the rules as much, and it's, uh, you know... It takes a few viewings, I think, for it to really settle in fully. Um, but I, I really, really love this film. I, I just think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, so, but here you have poor Ian uh, getting done in here. It's a bit hard to watch when you know what was going to happen to him in real life. But this is, uh, you know, this is going to be his last scene on film, really, on the big screen, anyway. Again, another really just primal image. I mean, just it's, it's a combination of just you know 
the, the, just the blood flying onto her dress. I mean, again, it's very, um, it's a combination of uh, her passing into womanhood and also it's almost a, that's a, the way that it sort of ejaculates onto her shirt. Um, again, it's that sort of sadistic, sexualized aspect of what Alan's been doing. So again, it's just, you know, really, really unsettling the way that that scene shot. And then, of course, Betty, in a way, is becoming a mother. She's learning how to manipulate. She's learning how to how to get him into her mindset, um, just not to the same ends, of course. But in, in a way, she is her mom now. Uh, you know, just the, uh, the 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 white flip side of her of her mother. Um, but she's actually in her, becoming in her own as a character, that, as as a, a full character, as a as a human being. She's learning how to how to uh, bend other people to what she wants. You know. And again, you have the dogs, another nature symbol, of course, running around and. Uh, now, what's interesting, of course, is that uh, she's already manipulating him when she sees the dog, so what she tells the police, is that true or not? Did she really know they were coming or not? You know, you don't really know for sure. Again, there's a lot of ambiguity in this scene, uh, more than I think uh, Argento has led on to. But yeah, again, not, you normally expect a big spectacular demise for the killer, but instead, again, it just goes in a different way here. You know, it's more disturbing. I mean, it's just so brutal the way it's shot, you know, with the handcuffs and the guns and everything. It's the, you know, it's the brutality that he was conditioned to practice or being turned on him. It's, it's, yeah, it's very, very disturbing. And, you know, of course, you have Betty protesting, not like my mother, nothing at all. It's like, well, is she? You don't really know. Here we are. This is uh, actually where Orion decided they wanted to stop the film after this, after he says he's a madman, totally crazy. So if you see the American prince, it went, it, you know, it fade to black, and that was it, and that's where we left Betty. Whereas uh, in Argento's original cut that you're watching, uh, which this should be matching up to, uh, you'll see Betty's a, she's obviously gone through a pretty significant change here. But, uh, she's not the same woman we saw at the beginning of the film, you know, answering the phone in a state of panic, you know. You know, she's no longer the understudy. You know, she she is the lead finally. Yeah, it's, uh, and of course you have this voice over here, which is again, big bone of contention for some viewers. You know, does she mean it, or is she just completely gone nuts? I don't know. I think I prefer reading it as being sincere that she actually has again sort of. Uh, attain the state of harmony that she's been seeking through the film with all the meditation with the music that she's actually um, succeeded that she actually can look at the world and not just be in a state of anxiety and, uh, and fear all the time so anyway so as I said phenomena was where we started the scene and here we have the lizard that she's actually seen this lizard uh, you know that, uh, you know, he's stuck here in the ground that she picks him up and she lets him go free uh, which of course if you've seen Trauma which was his next full feature not counting to evil eyes uh, which opens up with a lizard uh, in captivity that's stuck inside uh, a cage and then um, you see the lizard imagery con continuing on and on uh, through the rest of Trauma as well so it's uh, you know, I, just, I love the way that his films were, you know, they, they have these sort of waves that sort of roll through the films uh, you know, this is just continuing flow, you know, these the symbols and uh, all these little narrative flourishes that he that he runs back and forth. So if you watch his films in order, it's actually a rewarding experience. It's really, really fun. Uh, but I think this is uh, an absolutely crucial one. I think it's uh, one of his best films. Uh, 
again, I don't think it's quite gotten its due, but it is, uh, it, you know, it's usually ranked in one of, in the upper tier of his films, but not at the top, but just a, a really, really terrific film. I think it's hold up very well, and I think I've watched it uh, at least as much as uh, any of his other uh, best-known films. Just, there's something just compulsively watchable about it. You keep going back to it over and over again. It's, I don't know, it just has like, there's a really strong uh, power inside it that uh, it keeps pulling you back, and it, it captures a... A moment in time we'll never have again. This was his last uh, theatrical film in the 80s, and it's really the last great uh, Italian horror film of the 1980s. Um, really, there's, uh, there wasn't too far to go after that, except, I mean, you know, we had the church and uh, things like that that were, you know, good shots, but this was really the summit. You know, this is, uh, you know, this is really it. So I hope you've enjoyed watching opera. I, I think it's a really beautiful, uh, very cruel, and uh, just really, really fantastic piece of work, I think, for one of the one of the greatest directors we've ever had. And uh, I think this is uh, definitely a, a film of his that we'll keep looking at and that we'll keep reevaluating over the years. It just it has all these rewards that you keep finding every time you watch it as the years go by. It's, uh, there's always something new. So anyway, thanks very much for listening and uh, ciao.